Okay, we're back. Yes, we are. We are. Back. I've been away. I've been away. Ben's been renovating his basement. Love the guitars, right. dude. It's looking amazing. Welcome back. Yeah, it's good to have you it, back. It is nice to be in this nice place. I uh, don't have to worry about bothering the rest of my household when I do streams now, so I can just go into my cave. Very nice. Cool. I like it. It looks good. Uh, it's good to have you back, dude. Um, it's been a while since we chatted. I mean, yeah. I was up the coast. I was up the coast last week. I took some time off. Um, but I must admit, come Saturday, I was itching to get back. There's just so much going on at the moment. The man loves I to mean, work. <laughs> I just love to work with good people and just sit and talk. And we've got some of the best work in the world at the moment. And it's just been a really cool time. And this is, But it's this super is... cool to have you back. And I wanted to, to just kind of, you know, sing your praises firstly. Well done for, for calling... Um, the federal chairs calls on the last two, three, actually. The last three meetings that they had, you pretty much called it to the T. Um, if you don't follow Ben on Twitter, just go and follow him. Do yourself a favor. <clears throat> he has absolutely no freaking clue what he's talking about when it comes to macro, but he just seems to get it right. <laughs> he seems to get it that's, right. That's, that's, what, that's what really matters. Uh, you seem to get it right. So, so tell us what what's what's been going on in terms of like you know obviously just looking back over the last three months, the calls that you made, and you know the calls that are coming that you're making. You know, so, we, we kind of touched on it before we started. So yeah, let, just give us your thoughts. Yeah. So there was, um, I mean, the Fed, everybody knows, has been just raising rates. Uh, you know, they've been going seventy five at a clip. Uh, for a few, quite a few months, and then like this last one that they just announced was a, a 50 basis point hike, and um, you know everybody's been trying to call this this Fed pivot. You know, everybody wants to be the one that like nails that <laughs> that turnaround for the Fed, and like <clears throat> I think it's been really preemptive. All of this like notion that oh the fed's gonna pivot fed's gonna pivot fed's gonna pivot and and the problem with that mentality has been that at, with inflation numbers doing what they were doing because like everybody knows that the fed is watching the cpi numbers and the cpi numbers are super laggy like they don't th these are not like real-time numbers that that the fed is is using these these are numbers that are from you know, things that happened months ago are, are trickling into these, these CPI numbers. So it's just, it's, it's been weird to watch everybody just trying to hang on to this like Fed pivot narrative. And so it's been just the Fed raises rates. And then what happens is everybody goes, Oh, the Fed's going to pivot. Fed's going to pivot. And then the market just starts to rally. And then the Fed in between meetings starts saying hawkish things. And they're like, market, cool your shit. And then the market's like, oh, no, they're saying hawkish things. And then it like, uh, and then the, the Fed meeting happens. And then everybody goes, oh, shit, they're serious about these hawkish things. And then market drops. And then, you know, 
and then it drops too far, and then the Fed's like, eh, maybe I'm having some dovish thoughts, and then and then everybody goes, woo, dovish thoughts, and then they the market goes crazy, and then you know the the market goes a little overboard, and then the Fed's like, no, 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 we're we're still hawkish, don't worry, and then like the next Fed meeting happens, and it's like, oh my God, back down, and it's just like they just keep beating the market down every time it tries to get ahead of itself, and <laughs> it's just you know, like kind of silly to watch like happen over and over again where where we just keep going back and forth with this this whole like Fed pivot narrative. Because really the thing that I think that people don't seem to be getting through their head is the, the idea that like we we had like 12 years where every time the market like had even the slightest hiccup, the Fed was like, oh, don't worry, market, we'll backstop you. We'll backstop you. Like, it's like, yeah, we got nothing else going on. Why not? Inflation's low. Let's just slam on the gas and see what happens. And like, you know, it was just QE as far as the eye can see. And like, you just got this, We the market got lulled into this, this false sense of security that the Fed was going to buy the dip. And the thing that I think people have failed to recognize is that the the Fed can't buy the dip this time because the one thing that they're the scaredest about, and if you listen to them talk, just listen to what they say, they keep saying it over and over again. Like Jay Powell has been very clear on this, that like the last thing they want to do is ease up on inflation and then have it skyrocket again, only to go higher the next time. Cause that's what happened in the late 70s and that's their interpretation of those events it may not be a good interpretation but that's the one they're using and so that's the one that's important <laughs> and that's that's the other thing people keep trying to guess what the fed is going to do or guess what the fed should do and thinking that that's what they are going to do but like that's a completely different game like you want to guess what the fed is going to do and they're telling you what they're going to do if you were just listening to what the Fed has to say. And everybody wants to like, you know, there's the whole saying like, don't fight the Fed. But like the whole way up, everybody's been trying to fight the Fed. <laughs> everybody's trying to fight the Fed. It's And it's like, the Fed's like, no, seriously, I'm gonna raise rates and I'm gonna keep them there for quite a while. And I'm gonna just keep raising them. And everybody's like, nah, you're gonna pivot. Nah. And, that's not what's happening and they haven't they haven't shown that they're going to pivot and the the fact that they like keep saying this over and over again like look we're really concerned about like even slowing too early so like i mean they were doing 75 75 basis point hikes were just completely unheard of and we just did like how many of those in a row <laughs> like that's like completely unheard of and so now we're just getting to 50 basis point hikes and everybody's like, oh yeah, look at this. See, see they're pivoting, but like just raising, like all you're doing is slowing the, the size of the hikes. Cause like at this point, Jay Powell's like, and he said this in one of his uh, meetings right before, um, I forget which one it was. I think it was like the one at like, was it the Cato Institute? I don't know. There were, he had some sort of like luncheon thing where he went and asked, answered a bunch of questions. It was like at the end of November. And he was basically saying, like, look, like at this point, 
we're, we're lowering the sizes of the hikes because like there's a lagging effect here and we don't, there's a risk if we, uh, you know, hike too high that we end up hurting the market. But at this point, you know, they just want to kind of slow the hikes so that they allow a little more of those 75 basis points to kind of hikes to kind of catch up and let the market kind of digest those, let them work their way through the system. And so I think that, you know, considering slowing hikes to be a pivot is that is, uh, that is like a very, very overly optimistic view. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of like things that haven't quite worked their way through the system yet. I mean, even the crypto world and like crypto, everything works faster because most of the things resolve on chain. So like, I mean, crypto basically went through its entire deleveraging cycle by May, the end of May. Like it was like yeah. three arrows capital implosion, boom, run all the stops on every single lending protocol liquidate everyone and then it's done like tradfi does not work like that like and yeah. you can see it even in these like cfi tradfi players um you know like like three arrows that were borrowing shit tons of money uh uncollateralized you know that nobody knew was out there like nobody knew where that money had come from and you got like all these various cfi players that are like now it's G Genesis and, and uh, their uh, Genesis Global Capital and all those. Um, or what? Uh, I can't remember the name of that stupid thing. GC something. GBC. GBC. Uh, no. GBCD. No. GBDC. <laughs> yes. G. <laughs> no, dude. Now you've confused GCD. me. GCD. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah. There's like, well, they have like all these different companies that are all like, there's one that's like GDC and then there's one that's like GCD yes. and it's like, it's hard to keep them all straight. But the fact of the matter is that Barry's not doing so good. And <laughs> what impact do you think that has on where we are now versus where we could potentially go if the wheels come off that little truck? Um it's hard to be sure. Like it really is hard to be sure because like you've seen this over and over again, where you get this contagion effect, right? Like Luna implodes and it takes out three arrows, three arrows implodes and it puts a hole in Genesis. Yeah. And then like also FTX, yeah, FTX imploded. It's hard to be, it's, it's hard to be sure exactly like whether Luna had anything to do with that. Cause like, um, with like there's some theories out there that like maybe they like lost a ton of money on the uh market making side alameda did during the luna implosion by accidentally catching the knife um trying to like assume that it wouldn't go to zero which yes. if you knew anything about the mechanics of that thing you knew that if it unwinds it's going to zero going to zero yeah. Right. And like, so I don't know if the market maker just was trying to, to catch, 
catch the bottom. I mean, it's it's obvious that Alameda was not the the market maker that everybody thought they were. Um, like everybody, they had all the advantages in the world and still managed to lose billions of dollars. So, mm. yeah. Um, I, I it's, like I said, it's it's hard to be sure what's going on there as far as these these off chain somewhat sometimes uncollateralized loans or sometimes they are collateralized and that's even worse if for the market like we don't know who's got like maybe somebody's got a a huge collateralized loan collateralized by eth and maybe when genesis blows up it's gonna take out them you know you, you don't know when this stuff is off chain and so like you don't realize how much leverage is baked into the system because like that off-chain leverage has like a multiplier effect, it seems, in the crypto world. So like one thing that I like to watch is like the, um, I should pull it up, but like the, if, if you've, have you been on DeFi Llama and looked at like their uh, various stable uh, dashboards because those are super awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna pull that. I'm I'm gonna pull that up because this is a really really good tool for. Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's let's take out the DPEG ones. <laughs> ah. So. I like to filter these out. So there's like crypto back al algorithmic. So I pull out the algorithmic ones because, uh, you know, don't really like to trust those. Um, but so I like to look at the fiat backed ones, right? Because this to me tells you kind of like what the base money of crypto is. Like this is where we're at as far as base money in the system. This is all the the crypto assets that are backed by real world assets, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, we have to sort of take their word for it. But like these are the ones that, um, especially when it comes to the the Gemini dollar, which is down there, <laughs> but or Tether for that matter. But at least. You know, the the assumption is that these things are backed by like things like treasuries and commercial paper and various uh, real world assets that have been basically put on, basically tokenized by way of these uh, dollar denominated tokens. So this to me is like your base money. Then... If you look at the crypto backed ones, this gives you like all your CDPs and you can see just how low these have gotten. There's like five point. Let's see. Let's see. How, what is the total on this? So I'm trying to find the total. Uh, does it give the total? Wasn't it, but basically was, maybe six. Wasn't it on, on that other chart, like 130 bill? Oh yeah, there it is. Six. There, there's the number. Okay. 6.9 billion or 09 billion. So like you can see that basically all the leverage has been washed out because the other, the other chart was like, what, like 160 billion uh, or 120. Let's see. Let me, let me pull that back up again. 
get that. 137, 31, 31, 131 billion. And then only six of that is collateralized by crypto. So that is a very, very low like leverage to base money ratio that is happening there. And so that tells you that pretty much all the CDPs have been washed out of the system and all the on-chain leverage is gone. So, um, <clears throat> here, hold on. But yeah, all the, all the on-chain leverage is gone. And so there's no real multiplier, crypto multiplier effect. But what happened like during the the bull run was you had all this like borrowed money that was borrowed off chain, making its way on chain by way of the uh, stables and like just pumping up all these coins and stuff. And like all that borrowed money was then getting multiplied through these CDPs. And so like it had an even bigger effect because like at one point MIM was at like, you know, several billion uh, just by itself. Like, uh, let's see, is there, no, I don't know if I can see a history on that, but like, you can see that like at one point, 3. yeah, 4 bill. yeah, 3.5, 3.6 billion just by itself, which is, you know, and not, and die was at 9.3. So like <clears throat> our leverage That's is quite, basically quite remarkable. I mean, imagine telling somebody, in a market like this, like, just by the way, in three years' time, what's at $92 million now is going to be worth $3.5 billion in three years' time. No one would believe you. Yeah. Yup. So, it's, like, and and just, like, I think the peak for the, the fiat back stables was, like, 160-something, 170 billion. So, like, even at the peak there really wasn't that much on-chain leverage built in. Um, and, and you can tell by, I mean, we've dropped by more than the total on-chain leverage uh, in the fiat-backed tokens. So that should tell you that, like, you know, there, the, the leverage that existed in this system was not on-chain leverage, like, for the most part. I mean, there were some dramatic, uh, there were some dramatic liquidations, but like in the big scheme of things, that wasn't news, what was news. News just in that Sam, Sam Bankman, fraud tomato is going to be extradited to the U.S. Just oh, through. he he doesn't have to rot in a bohemian prison. No, that's good for him, I guess. Well, he'll he was like, a, he'll get a beachfront property in California, I'm sure, or maybe even Florida if he's lucky. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. Like, John J. Ray is throwing that guy as far under the bus as he can get him. Like, I think, you know, the narrative sort of shifted. I think early on, the uh, the the media was being, like, hitting him with kid gloves. Like, they're yeah, like, yeah, oh, totally. poor kid. Just, with, uh, he made a mistake. Oopsie. Yeah. He lost $10 billion. Uh, but he tried and like now I think as, as more has come to light on this, 
Yeah. I think the media realized and and a lot of the the regulatory players realized, oh, this was this was not just an accident that, you know, this money was misappropriated. Like this <laughs> this was malfeasance of the highest order. So, um I think you've seen that narrative sort of shift. And and I think that yeah. people need to recognize that too that like well, at first they were trying to cover their boy. I, I think at this point they're like, nah, uh, he deserves the bus. Cause, yep. and John J. Ray is, is doing his best to, to let everybody know just how screwed up. So who is John, who is John J. Ray? Uh, he's the CEO that was put in, uh, FTX. FTX. He's the former Enron CEO that took over after okay. Enron blew up, and he was put in charge as CEO to kind of pick up the pieces of what uh, Sam left behind and try to get money to the people that need to get it. And you know, it's going to be years. I mean, there's there's an argument to be made that there's something sort of bullish about all these various liquidations of like the TradFi. Uh, liquidations because like it takes so long for these processes to work their way through like i think it was like just the other like i think it was like last year or something or maybe it was earlier this year that like the the lehman brothers you know stuff finally made its way through the system and like they finally closed the books on on that whole thing so like it takes you know sometimes decades to to clear this shit up so like you know i you know, there's a chance that like some of these coins and stuff are not going to be sold right away. But yeah, speaking of coins that are going to be sold, uh, word on the street is that uh, the Mount Gox payout is coming in January. January. So that's not great because <laughs> um, like some of those people have been bag holding from much smaller basis. That was forced bag holding, you know, and even at this price, they've got serious profit, dude. Oh yeah, they yeah they're still up like, got to be at least ten x. Yeah, yeah. So what was the I, price of Bitcoin when when Mount Cox went down? Uh, you know, I that was that predates my my uh, crypto involvement, so well, just, I, I don't even know that off the top of my head, but it had to be much much lower. Um, because what year was that? That was like, I don't even remember, 20. Yeah, that was. My computer froze up for a second there. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. But like, yeah, the cost basis on that has got to be much, much lower. Um that just was 2014, right? Yeah. So, like, I mean, you're looking at on the order of several hundred dollars, you know, or a couple hundred dollars. So like, it was 400 dollars, four hundred and eighteen dollars. Yeah. So that is a monster win, even at sixteen thousand. Like, that's money that people didn't expect they were ever going to get, and all those people are wrecked now. <laughs> Yeah. After the the fall of everything, so you know, if you get a monster payday, like, you know, maybe I mean, some of them may just 
you know, say, hey, look, we're pretty much at the bottom now, no point in selling. But for some people, that's going to be life-changing money that they never thought they would get. So, in my in my opinion, I think it's very difficult to not see a severe sell-off. Yeah, that's my opinion. I'll be very surprised if we don't. Mm-hmm. But we probably I, the the last two people that we should be asking this question to because we are very bearish. We have yeah, our reasons, and I, I think our reasons are pretty solid. <clears throat> Yeah, and like I've I've been you know pretty uh, upfront about my bearishness the whole time, um, but like I think I think that like the bearishness will subside. Like I, I'm getting less bearish the further down we go, and like I think that like. Every little bit we go down from here, it significantly de-risks buying in. But like the thing that I think people need to recognize is that like this is probably going to be a long and slow bottom and not a a wick down from here. So I I don't think there's any real hurry to call the bottom. And I think that when we get to the bottom, you'll have some time to, to DCA. But like the way things currently stand, it's been kind of just a slow, arduous grind down lower and lower and lower. So like it's, um, I think it's going to keep being a grind for a while. And like we, we probably aren't going to, you know, maybe when the Mount Gox stuff happens, we'll see a big wick down. Um, that's entirely possible. But, you know, I, I just kind of see there being a just long kind of period where everybody just gets bored. <laughs> and and, and we, we may not even have a Twitter to fall back on uh, to keep us entertained because... Uh, Elon's doing everything he can to break it, but so it's a hundred. So it's one hundred and forty-two thousand Bitcoin, huh? Yeah, that's quite a few. Mm. That is quite a few, but like, if if Bitcoin dumps, like there there are certain bots out there that that the market makers run. Assuming any of the market makers are even. Uh, functional by the time this happens because like it seems like you know you got more going belly up every day like i've heard all sorts of rumors about jump being you know working their way out of the market like they were selling off a bunch of stuff uh they were shipping a bunch of coins to exchanges and stuff and there have been rumors i don't about think i don't think jump have i don't think jump or or at risk to be honest, I think they've got their house in order. Well, I think I think jump the jump crypto might be at risk. Like jump the 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 trading firm, like like that no. does tradfi stuff. They're they're yeah. fine. Like they yeah. this was play money to them. Like yeah. they their size is size. <laughs> yeah, their size like, is size. 
but I do think that there's a chance that with all the stuff that's happened, they go, you know, this whole crypto stuff isn't worth it. It's not ready for prime time. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Like they may have just lost enough money in playing these games that they just decide that to, you know. I don't, Ben, I don't necessarily agree with you on this. I think that, I think there is the, the safe play. I think there's, there's definitely a lot of that going on. I mean, these guys, they know their way around the playground. There's no question about that. But I don't think that it's a question of, you know, this thing isn't, you know, it's, I don't think they're thinking it's not worth it. I think they're very aware that it is worth it. I think they, they realize that this thing isn't going anywhere because let's face it, it's not going anywhere. There's no. far too much going on. And I think they, what, what they're doing right now, like all the savvy people, is that they are positioning themselves for what's to come. And that's what I think is going on. How yeah, they're going about it, I don't know, but that's what's going on. It, in it's entirely opinion. possible. I'm, I'm not like trying to predict like the, the definite, you know, demise of jump crypto but like i think i think the there is a possibility that they i mean even if they don't fold they, they may just kind of go dormant for a while and just wait until the market conditions improve to a point where they can actually you know make Deploy. money yeah. um because like i mean they do have a lot of like various bots and stuff and it Actually, how we even got into this thing <laughs> was initially I was just pointing out that like there have been like uh, bots that kind of like keep Bitcoin and, and ETH kind of within a range of each other. So like when Bitcoin dumps, the market makers start selling off ETH too because they know that like, you know, th there's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy thing that happens there where like things that have had a correlation in the past, people create bots to play that arb, like that arb for the, the correlation. And so those bots then reinforce the correlation. And then you just get this sort of like self-reinforcing trend where you get um, these things trading kind of, you know, at, within a certain range of each other, like, uh, ETH tends to be a little higher beta, you know, meaning that like when when Bitcoin goes down one percent, maybe uh, ETH goes down one and a half or two or, you know, but like it's, uh, you know, in general lately, ETH has, has vastly outperformed Bitcoin, but like there's still a certain amount of correlation. Like on days when Bitcoin dumps, ETH's coming right with it. Like, yeah. So, and then like, there's also, I think just different mechanics and stuff with ETH too, because there, there, there exists on chain leverage for ETH. So you can get these sort of liquidations and stuff. And then the other thing to keep in mind too, is like, until we actually get the Shanghai fork for Ethereum, like more and more ETH is getting locked every day and you know, and gas prices actually haven't been like super terrible. And so like the amount of ETH has actually been dropping. So like it, it becomes less and less liquid. Um, and so if you do get a, somebody trying to drop a dump a bunch of coins into the market, 
like it moves the market a lot harder than it than it used to because um i mean it used to be that all the eth was not locked you know like back because the uh, beacon chain started in december of 20 so that was two years ago and it's been two years of people just locking away east that hasn't like it's a black box i mean it may as well be gbtc <laughs> yeah. uh, and um you know obviously that black box is going to be short-lived once once the uh shanghai fork happens um but even then so tell us, it, so tell us about shanghai fork what's what's the story there so uh march i think is what i've been hearing for that that is basically when staked ETH will be able to be unstaked. So you got some people that have had their ETH staked since like ETH was at like, you know, two, three hundred, four hundred. Uh, and again, you got a situation where you have people that are massively in profit that got to watch the whole run up and watch their, their numbers blow up on paper. And then it, you know, fell back down, but like, they're still going to be deeply in the money. So like, there is some risk that some people are going to want to unstake and sell once that happens too. Um, now the, um, there's a, a really, really good, uh, paper that was done by, uh, data always. I don't know if you, uh, you follow data always, uh, mm. but excellent analysis on stuff like super duper good. Um, but there's a mirror that, that he did that basically what's the, what's, what's the URL on that? Uh, yeah, let me, let me, uh, let me see if I can like find that. Hold on. Yeah. So I think it's on their sub stack that, and it went through like kind of what, um, it kind of went through like how much selling pressure you could expect to see um, coming out of the merge. My computer's okay. like not handling this well, but like check out that Substack cause it's, it's fantastic. Um, and Thanks, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's super, super good. But basically um, what the TLDR is, is that like when the Shanghai fork happens, you're only going to be able to remove your profits, not the principal. So like you're not going to be able to remove like all 32 ETH that you put in. You'll be able to remove whatever like the, the profits from staking were initially. Eventually you'll be able to remove all of it, but like initially you'll only be able to remove a little bit of it. So that sort of limits the sell pressure that you can get. Um, and so, and there's also going to be kind of like, I think like a line that you got to kind of wait in to be able to unstake and stuff. So like with ETH being burned every day through transactions, cause like there's still been like net negative issuance uh, over the last few months of ETH. So like, I'm not really super worried about like a massive dump, but you could see like a decent sized dump. Um, but 
that would also probably improve the liquidity of ETH, uh, just having those those more coins out there. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. But like, I, I I'm not like a, a doomsayer on uh, on the unstaking event for ETH. But like, at the same time, though, like you have to imagine that there are certain people that want to stake ETH but have been like, I don't know, like, I don't want to just lock up my coins forever if I'm never going to be able to unstake them. So there may be a, a bit of a de-risking of staking in general once this happens too. So you may actually like see a bunch of people rush in door to stake once this happens. And the other part of this is, I think you'll see a lot tighter. Actually, that's, a, that's very interesting. <laughs> That's a good play. Um, I think once once you see this, you will see a much tighter spread on the stake these to ETH pairs because you'll have a way of arbing the other way. Because like what we've seen in big sell-offs recently is that a lot of these like Coinbase stake these like re like all these things like the the pairs with eth go down to like sometimes like just the other day coinbase's went down it was like a four percent discount on on coinbase's relative to regular eth and that's because like a bunch of people tried levering up eth you know staking so they would borrow money. And then what happens is because you can't actually liquidate the, the underlying asset, which is ETH, because it's staked, it expresses itself through the, the Coinbase ETH peg, right? And so if you've levered that, or if you just need out of the position, you need liquidity, whatever, um, because you've got to cover a, you know, a position that maybe you're about to get liquidated on or whatever. If you got to sell, if you're a forced seller, you're, you are selling at a, at a discount to regular ETH because there's difficulty arbing that because you can't withdraw ETH to, to capture the arb. Are you there? Oh, you're, you're muted. I always do this at least once in a stream. Well, mute and not want to disturb. Um, it's part of being a boomer, but it's fine. I'll get it right eventually. Uh, I find I find it really interesting that, despite the fact that you know there is all this turmoil in the market, that there are conversations like the one that we've just had right now, which just once again supports this whole idea that. You know, crypto is not going anywhere, you know, and it's, it's, it's a question. So there's two things that I want to chat before we call it today. And the first thing is that I want to, I just want to go back to the macro aspect of, of, of the discussion and, you know, look at what we can effectively expect. You know, what do you expect in your crystal ball based on, you know, the facts, not what it is that we wish would happen, but what they're doing and so, the conversations that, that they've been having. What do you think is going to happen in the next two or three meetings from now? So 
I do kind of want to tie this into crypto because like I do see there are very bullish green shoots that I think that people are not recognizing widespread right now. Which but, is the second part of my question, but thanks. I appreciate yeah, you doing I'll, that. Yeah, I'll work yeah. my way. I'll work my way backwards because, like, okay. I, 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 you, you got me on a thought, and I don't want to lose it. Okay. <laughs> but Go like, the um, so one of the things that I think that people need to keep in mind is that yeah, I don't think crypto is going anywhere because we've, we these rails these these financial rails that have been created have become more and more sophisticated. There's becoming more and more on-chain tooling for doing things like hedging and for, for doing the big boy TradFi stuff. And we're not all the way there yet. That there's still plenty of tools that, that TradFi has that crypto does not, or the liquidity isn't there in those tools in order to you know allow like a ton of money to you know, percolate in, in this ecosystem. However, there is an arbitrage opportunity and I have seen TradFi players trying to capture this arbitrage opportunity and they are trying to build the necessary uh, infrastructure to be able to capture it, which is in the, in the real TradFi world, like one of the big things that, um, like where a lot of the leverage comes from, like you still have collateralized debt positions in, in the, in uh, just as you have them in crypto and the, they, they came from the real world and they were sort of based on like things like repo, like repurchase agreements where you basically, you put up a treasury at, or some other like acceptable form of collateral and you put that up and then you borrow money and then you can lever that stuff. You can loop it. You can do all the same stuff that you see people doing on chain, like with CDPs. But the thing is like, because rates have risen in, in the, the TradFi world, you've got like, you know, r rates that are, you know, for borrowing and lending that are, are on the order of like 5%. And, Think about what the rates are currently in the um, in the crypto space. Like, let's let's just pull up the the DeFi llama yields right now. Like, you've got quite a bit of money on the sidelines, and my computer is is definitely not handling doing the the two screen thing well. But you've got quite a bit of money on the sidelines that is well below that um, level of interest rate that is being charged in, in the real world. And um, so there's going to be an incentive there for people to um, try to capture that ARV opportunity and like use all this available on-chain liquidity to do things in the TradFi world. Like people want to be able to like lever treasuries and stuff like that because there's a funding rate arbitrage opportunity where they can go, I can borrow for 3% here and get 5% over here. That is like, like aside from the smart contract risk, that's, that's risk-free arbitrage. 
like, I mean, not totally risk-free, obviously, because there is like smart contract risk and other things to um, consider. But like, that is a spread that people are going to be looking at and going, I want to be the one to capture that. And the only way to capture that sort of thing is for people to move more assets from off-chain on-chain. And so even if the U.S. doesn't want to do it, somebody outside the U.S. just might do it for them. And it's going to be like, I still see the crypto world as being part of, it's basically an extension of the euro dollar system. And if the U.S. has not been able to control the euro dollar system for 70 years, what the hell makes you think they're, they're going to be able to control crypto? Like they can try to do what they can to, to slow it down and to try to keep this thing from growing too much too quickly. Um, but at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to stop other people from doing things with, with treasuries or with whatever like you sell that stuff to other parts of the world, you don't know what they're going to do with it. They're going to they're going to find ways to put that crap on chain, one way or another, and they're going to find ways to like make it so that they can capture these arbitrage opportunities. Like eventually, like you saw this with um, Bitcoin. You had that like kimchi premium or whatever, where like. Yeah you had that was massive, huge. I mean, massive that regulatory was huge. arbitrage happening yeah. that like, you know, gave you, it gave you a spread. But the thing is, eventually that spread got closed. And once I, I think you were going to see that spread, that regulatory spread, it will close eventually. And, and people will realize just how fruitless it is to try to stop it. <laughs> yeah. Like you can try to slow it down. I, and uh, another analogy is that like cryptography, like in the late eighties, early nineties, the government was trying to, the U S government was trying to treat cryptography as munitions and shut people down from using cryptography. I mean, it's just code. And like, eventually there was like a landmark, court battle where they literally printed out a bunch of code into a book for this like cryptographic uh you know algorithm they printed it out into a book it took it to court and they're like look this is free speech and then the judge is like ah yeah i see what you did there and uh, <laughs> then you know that was basically them losing that battle of of classifying this stuff as munitions because like they literally made it so that like they, they would consider it a crime for you to like use cryptography or travel with cryptography go to other countries with cryptography because like it's that was like espionage to them and eventually the cat came out of the bag but like in the end like look at all the advanced like look at all the economic advantages that came out of cryptography. You couldn't have online banking. You couldn't have like, there's so much of the internet that opened up because people had access to cryptography 
that you couldn't even like shop online safely without cryptography. Like there was just a huge boon to society once the government got out of the way and just let accepted that this was something they couldn't control. Cause like on the yep. internet, that regulatory arbitrage happens and then it becomes a profit arbitrage. And once it becomes a profit arbitrage, it's only a matter of time, but, but before those that are making the profit start lobbying the politicians with that money <laughs> and then eventually it gets fixed. And so, cause they want to legitimize their business and expand their business to, you know, first world countries. And so that just is a matter of like paying off politicians. So like once you make enough money at the arbitrage, you just, uh, you pay off politicians. You take a page out of the Sam Bankman Freed book and you, you just start buying politicians. And then eventually this stuff kind of gets, these gaps get closed. So that is my sort of like cynical worldview of <laughs> like how we're going to get to a very bullish place for crypto. Because what's going to happen is over time, like as these arbitrages get bigger and bigger and bigger, you're going to see that propensity to push money into the system and into the politicians' hands that will increase and increase until, you know, these are the financial rails, not just, um, although, you know, I, I think it, there, it's going to be some time before, you know, I think everything is happening on, on chain. And like, I think to some extent expecting that, that the U S dollar system is just going to like disappear or give way to all of this. You're that is going to require some significant macro event for something like that to happen. And even if it did, Crypto is not going to be a safe haven. No, there will be no safe haven. Everything yeah. will be wrecked. Um, so the, the, the whole I think, notion... I think, I think what's happened over the last 18 months or the last 12 months particularly has been Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's failure to uphold the very essence of what it was intended to be uh, in many ways. I mean... I hate saying that. I mean, it, it just really pains me to say what I just said, but that's what I see, you know. I mean, if it changes, then I'm going to be the first person to get on that hill and fight the good fight, but I just don't see that happening. Not not, not for a long while, if ever, you know. It's just, I agreed. Yeah. I, long term, like very long term, I don't know how bullish I am on Bitcoin, just because until they figure out how to fix their security budget issue it's hard for me to like think that this thing's going to last 20 30 more years like the next five to ten years perhaps like it could be good but like at the end of the day i think there's only so many options for them for security budget and that is either a they'll have to like increase the 21 million hard cap and they'll have to, to, to remove that. Or, um, you know, I've heard other people propose like reducing the block size, but that just seems like, like you're just making it more expensive to transact. Like, 
I feel like you're going the wrong direction there. If you're going, well, we'll just make the block size or the you know block space more uh, like scarce to make up for the fact that way people get charged more for transactions. And it's like, is that how you become a reserve currency? You just make it like eventually you'll just have like you know you'll be like uh, you know down to like you know four blocks. <laughs> every every like hour or two you know like it's just like i how is that going to make you more of a reserve currency it's not it it's just not like so the way i see it like they don't really have an option but to subsidize through emissions like so i yeah and then once that 21 million you know meme plays out you know, then they're gonna have to find something else. Now, I, I, you know, the market is very, very good at just coming up with narratives based on price action. So it doesn't matter if that 21 million meme dies, like it wouldn't be the end of Bitcoin necessarily because all you need is the price if, to go up and what people if, will make up a reason for it. What if I told you that the next halving is going to be a non-event? It, it entirely could be. I honestly, I think that the, the halvings have sort of coincidentally uh, corresponded with like global expansions. And so it's not really bit, like tested <laughs> like what that looks like in a situation where the, the, the market is in the dumps. Like, so like, and global liquidity is decreasing. So like, I think I mean, there the having meme is a good, uh, it's a good narrative, and I, we'll see what happens with it. But like, like, I mean, and it and it is sort of like there's a certain amount of stock to flow thing going on there, where it's like fewer coins coming onto the market to dump. That means that you know, and that usually by that time, all the coins have worked their way into the hands of long-term holders, and then you know. The overall really, really? <laughs> well i mean that's the price that... was six the, the price was sixty nine thousand dollars bro and it's now sitting at sixteen thousand six hundred and eighty hey hey that's that's like not even like an 85 percent drawdown yet like we're 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 looking all right like it's better than most of my altcoins <laughs> um so I don't know. Like, I, I think that, like, yes, it's dropped significantly, but historically, we're right on. We're we're kind of like right in the in the norm. Not for, really, for dude. There's another two bands of color on that rainbow chart. I'm not sure whether you need to be reminded about that. <laughs> well, the rainbow, <laughs> the rainbow chart. That's a whole other thing. But yeah, I I think. But the other thing, the other thing that I think that people fail to recognize, is that like. The whole HODL meme, right, with, with Bitcoin is that, like, basically, as time goes on, the more people are HODLing their coins and not, like, transacting in them, a bigger percentage, and, and then with fewer new ones coming onto the market, like, everybody likes that inherently because yeah. it's sort of Ponzi-ish because you get that low float effect where there's not a lot of coins. And so if you get any sort of buy pressure, it shoots the, the price up. But the downside of that is that as time goes on and you have more hodlers, 
the liquidity might get really bad and you might still just get huge drawdowns because you don't have as much liquidity. Now, yeah. as all the derivatives and stuff become more prevalent, you may see a similar effect to you see in gold where eventually there's just so much paper Bitcoin floating around that it's easy to manipulate the price of actual Bitcoin because it, it becomes very easy to just make new ones via paper rather than digging them out of the ground or mining them. Yeah. So something like that. But I don't know. That's but don't just, you, but, but that, Ben, don't you think, don't you think from a, from, from a pure mathematical aspect, right? You've got a halving that's coming. There's 2 million Bitcoin left, which are going to be mined over the next hundred years. I mean, sure. It's a lot of Bitcoin, but in terms of the volume of Bitcoin that's been introduced into the market from a mathematical principle perspective, is there really that much inflow to compensate for the dynamic or the market dynamic that you've just described? I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know that, like, I think it requires inflow to push it up. You have to get new people involved. And, and the problem is that like, because Bitcoin doesn't change, and that, that's sort of the feature, that, that's the thing they hang yes. their hat on. Is that that's it the doesn't... beautiful thing about it, yes. Absolutely. I, I mean, that is the thing they hang their hat on. But the problem is it's harder to get new people if you don't change your product offering. Because at a certain point, it's been 13 years since Bitcoin came out. If, if you haven't bought in yet, what are those people waiting for? Like, if you didn't buy in the last two times, what makes you think they're going to, you know, buy into the next wave? Like, I, at a certain point, all the people that have jumped are going to have already jumped. Or you need to be recruiting new people from the next generation to, to jump in, which, I mean, that's that's entirely possible. But, you know demographics would tell you that there's going to be fewer and fewer new people to to get in um so that's also maybe a but at the same time you have that the demographic situation does sort of work in your favor in that the boomers all have a ton of money and they're all going to die in the next you know 20 years and then they're going to leave all their money to their kids and for the first time in their life, they might actually have some money and they might go, hey, I want to buy some Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, maybe that works both ways. So, okay, I don't know. What the, happens, the, what, I don't what, have I don't have a particularly like totally bearish view on, on anything. Like I always try to weigh the pros and cons and just kind of like look at the market, you know, as I see it from first principle you know the, the reason why the reason why i'm having this discussion now and and why i'm questioning it in light of what's going on right now is that i want to revisit these questions and hopefully we will well we will we will get to revisit these questions in six months a year a year and a half two years time and and that's kind of like remember remember at the end of december of 2022 when shit really was freaking sucky yeah. And this is how we felt about things. Now, two years later, how do we feel about things in light of, you know, the market really like just 
starting to heat up and you know bitcoin's just broken forty two thousand dollars again and it's like what's different now you know like it's going to be interesting to reflect upon the, these questions yeah. again oh that's, absolutely that's I the reason why i'm asking them yeah yeah it's all it's awesome to be able to document this stuff in real time because you can yes. you can you can look back and you can see if your 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 line of reasoning was a good one or whether yeah. it was a bad one and like I think that's what's important when you're when you're making these decisions. To be, don't ask yourself were you right or were you wrong. Like, because if you're just like looking at a line on a chart and saying like which way is it going to go, like you got a fifty-fifty shot, and you can praise yourself when you get it right, and you can like lambast yourself when it, you get it wrong, and pat like, myself on the back. <laughs> is it going to go up or down? Yes, you know, like, <laughs> but like these sorts of things as to like explaining why the market is doing something it's a little more verifiable whether you were correct for the right reason not just up or down but like did things play out the way that you said they were going to yeah. um and and i'm sure that i've said things here today that are going to be proven wrong but like you know maybe uh there's a there's a kernel of truth here that like two years from now we'll go Damn, nailed it. <laughs> um, What's next? What's next for the Fed? So the Fed, yes, I would like to get back to that. So I think you're going to continue to see them raising rates, um, but maybe not for too long. Um, it may not be as long as everybody thinks. And I think that, well, I mean, I think people are thinking that they're going to pause at some point, right? They're going to, they're going to hike, hike, hike. I think maybe you got two to three more hikes left um, before they just stop and pause. And, but the thing is the pause may not be as bullish as everybody thinks. Now, I think what you will see is once they pause, um, everybody's going to pile into treasuries. Uh, and you're already starting to see that on the on the long end of the curve where people are piling into treasuries because they uh, see less risk that they're going to go higher as they've gone higher and higher and higher. Eventually, because the yield of a treasury is inverse to its price, right? So like as as the yield goes up, the price goes down. But eventually they know that like, the Fed controls the short end of the curve. So like the, the, the shorter dated stuff, the, you know, the three month bills, the, you know, stuff like that. And one month bills, those sorts of things are what the Fed has the most control over. Fed has not a ton of control over the long end of the curve and they've shown it. Unless the only way I see that they could control that longer end is just by dumping all the treasuries they have. And that is a, that is a distinct possibility that if they feel like the market isn't listening to them and doing what they want, they could just, they got a lot of treasuries. They could just go, all right, you like treasuries so much, have some treasuries. <laughs> so like, I think you have to sort of wade into the water here. You know, it's, it's not a bad time to start like buying treasuries and like getting some of that yield and stuff like that right now because with the slowing of the hikes it, they've been significantly de-risked and there will be like once they've say they're pausing 
I mean, I think treasuries are going to, they're going to go bonkers because people are going to be like, great. I don't have to worry about the fed raising rates on me again. I'm getting into treasuries. Yeah. And so I think that is one thing that I sort of expect, but you know, depending on what CPI numbers are doing now, you're seeing a lot of the high frequency data suggests that like inflation's pretty much been, been slayed at this point. And I think you're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of stuff like rents and stuff are starting to show signs that, that they're about to come down. And like, those have been big inputs into to CPI. Um, but like, I, I don't know, like the, the job numbers, like as far as unemployment and stuff, haven't been super terrible. Like the Fed's been kind of pointing to job openings, which is sort of a flawed metric, really. Um, I don't know why they keep focusing on job openings because like there's a lot of change that's happened over the years as things have gone more online when it comes to job openings. I mean, it's very easy to post a job opening these days. You don't have to take an ad out in the newspaper. Like it's very easy to just go, boom, put a job out. Even if you don't want anybody, like even if you don't plan on hiring somebody, you can just put out a job opening and you can go, hey, uh, you know, I still want to get some applicants. Maybe I'll find somebody worth hiring, but probably not, you know? And so the Fed's really looking at the job opening stuff and they want to see the, the job market soften up. But the, the fact of the matter is you have demographically a ton of boomers that have all retired all have a ton of money and they still want DoorDash. They still want like services. They still want entertainment and they have to get that from the people that are still working. And so there's still a lot of demand for that money or there's still a lot of like stuff demanded from the boomers and they have to go to the millennials and the zoomers to get it. And what's left of Gen X, like still like they've got to go to those demographics in order to get it. And so those generations are going to be like, hey, pay up. You're, I know you're hogging all that money. Give it to me. And, yeah. <laughs> and so like there's a chance that like wages just stay elevated and for a long time. And like if wages stay elevated, it's actually going to be the boomers that get hurt the most in all this because – their wages aren't going up. They're on fixed incomes. So uh, I think the millennials are going to extract that money out of them one way or another. <laughs> like, and so like, I think there's a chance that like this whole notion that raising rates is going to soften the job market. I think it will do it to an extent, but it may not be sufficient to actually kill off demand until it starts putting like real pain on the boomers as far as, uh, you know, having to pay these increased wages to people to make them a cheeseburger, you know, because like, if, if you're getting significant raises as prices are going up, or especially now that they're not really going up, that, that might be even a worse scenario for, yeah. for people that have money that have retired is prices staying the same for goods and stuff, but like services are skyrocketing because 
they have to pay people like that the, the people input might keep going up but more than the actual inflation <laughs> the people input i like that the people yeah. input yeah absolutely so you spoke about you you spoke about green shoots you know like we've we've obviously kind of been through the the motions of a fairly well actually a very bearish perspective on things and you know it's it's been substantiated it's not just well i'm bearish because i'm down bad and it's you know it is this you know it's not that it's it's there's clear reasoning and there's clear rationale as to what's going on here and i think yeah. most people can agree with what's being said here today at the same time there is still you know this 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 beautiful thing that's that's in the room and it's the relevance of crypto and the relevance of taking you know these 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 dynamics and these principles and these mechanics that are the traditional finance world and incorporating them on chain and making them work efficiently a lot less cost effectively and you know to the benefit of more than just one or two people but for a lot of people you know who know what they're doing um and those are the green shoots, right? I mean, it's it's kind of like, how do you see, you know, the next the next year playing out in terms of, as you so eloquently put it, the green shoots that you see around you? So I think you're going to see building. Like, I think you're going to see building out of infrastructure. Like, there are still pieces, parts that are missing from the crypto economy. Like, stuff like being able to speculate on interest rates. Like... That is a key, key component in TradFi. Like everything is like, it used to be all LIBOR. Now they're trying to ram SOFR down everybody's throat, which is like a similar metric. But like, this is how people plan in the real world is they go, I have, you know, to expect this interest rate. And so if, if it goes wildly one way or the other, this is going to either hurt me or help me. I need to be able to hedge that risk. And so if you don't have something like that on chain, it's difficult for you to do business. Like that is like one of the most popular hedges in the world is being able to hedge interest rate risk. And in the, in the crypto world, there's no good way to do that. And so I, I think you're going to need to see something like that built out. I think you're going to need to see, uh, the on-chain derivatives, I think those are going to become more sophisticated over time. Um, and they need to get some Lindy. Like they need to just exist for a while, show that they can work before people put a significant amount of money in them. But like as the ability to hedge on-chain like increases, I think you're going to see, again, more arbitrage happening between the traditional financial world and crypto world. Because if it's cheaper for you to insure something on chain that it is off chain well then that's going to put flows that's going to put pressure for flows to move from tradfi to crypto and so i think you're going to see building out of that infrastructure that's required to capture those various arbitrages and there's a lot of building that has to be done uh, that that's really what it boils down to i think and there's a lot of building to be done and i think there will be some time for us to catch the bottom on this stuff but like it's happening. I've seen it. Like there are people trying to do this stuff and build these things out and it's just going to take a little bit of time, but like 
just watch what the banks are doing. Like watch what the big institutional players are doing. Like Fidelity's like got their own crypto exchange with like, I think it was like BlackRock or somebody. I forget who all the players were. I think it was JP Morgan, Fidelity and BlackRock went together on an exchange. So like watch what they're doing, not what they're saying. Cause Jamie Dimon's always talking shit about crypto, but yeah. then out the back, he's like, Let's load up the docs on crypto, you know, like, <laughs> like they're trying to make it legitimate and to be entrenched players in this space. And frankly, we've made it easy for them by putting a bunch of like shitty charlatans like uh, SBF up as our representatives. And so I think ultimately. We the, really the, did fail with that one, didn't we? Well, I mean. To be honest, like most of crypto is playing like checkers while these dudes are playing chess. Like, like this, yeah. Totally. Yeah, like there's not even chess. Like they've, they, they've got like risk management down to an absolute science. Yeah. And like when you look at like what has been put forward for uh, the crypto representatives like for risk management like it's a joke compared to the the type of frameworks and stuff that exists in the tradfi space for managing risk and and part of it is just because the tooling isn't sophisticated enough to even support any of that sort of stuff so the types of players that are less sophisticated are you know here <laughs> because they have an they have an advantage here because the the people that actually know what they're doing don't want to play in a place where they can't adequately hedge because that's what they do for a living, the professionals. <laughs> and like, I think that you're going to see more of that tooling built out and you're going to see the, the, it's going to be harder for people like, uh, you know, that just kind of get into the stuff to make money because it's going to be a different type of player. Once these big boys move in and they bring, all of their TradFi risk management knowledge into this space, like, and they have the right tooling to execute on it. Like, you're gonna have a hard time make a harder time making a dollar in that space. Like, I wasn't in crypto back in like 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18. <laughs> like, I, I was kind of watching sort of from the sidelines, but not really paying a lot of attention. And like I've heard stories about how easy it was to like make money just because it was like literally just inflows alone would, would carry you. It didn't really matter. Like, you know, like sometimes you would get wrecked if you, if you, you know, were buying alts and stuff when those were unwinding and everybody was going back to Bitcoin or whatever. But like in general trading, I mean, you didn't have super sophisticated traders like, as time has gone on, it's become harder and harder to catch an edge. And I think you're going to continue to see that trend. I think you're going to, but the good news is though, as far as green shoots is that so much money has washed out. <laughs> so much yeah. money has washed out. that if you're holding anything at the end of this, the potential to reap huge gains is going to be there because they will need to buy things like ETH and whatnot in order to be able to 
you know, well, just, do what they want to do on chain. Yeah. So like, and that when ETH goes up, everything goes up. And so like that, that's the green shoot right there is that you can tell from the, the TradFi players actions that this stuff isn't going away. They're just becoming more and more entrenched in, in what's going on. They're, they're funding things, you know, from the sidelines and stuff. And that they're they're making moves to to create exchanges to be able to capture all, all the the people that want access to this stuff they're doing things like uh figuring out um custody and all this stuff so that's the green shoot right there is that the money has washed out but the tide will come back and when it does if you're holding anything of value <laughs> it it will flow back into your pockets at some point so yeah. So for me, the green shoots are what you mentioned earlier on is the the building that's going on right now is is it's beyond just kind of coming to the realization that you have an, a mental illness and that you need to manage it accordingly. It goes beyond just understanding that the tide is out and it will push. It's actually, for me, the significant thing is, and obviously what you're say, saying is 110% correct, but for me, it's actually the kind of stuff that we've been doing, you know, like as a collective, as a community, you know, as, as individuals as well, is, you know, coming to terms with your mental illness, but then also coming to terms with what is needed in the space. What, what are the, the levers and the pulleys and the... the the platforms that will allow for all these ideas, ideologies, and principles to be incorporated in, in, in an on-chain environment, translated from the TradFi environment. And how do we then get to play a part in that? Because, you know, we're not just sitting and lamenting the fact that the market looks like shit and you can't trade and there's no edge and it's, you know, the price action's terrible. It's like, okay, well, what, what's left to do? Well, let's build something. Let's talk about what's happening that's building let's make a contribution that's meaningful yeah and that's what i'm enjoying about the process right now is that i'm no longer a spectator in this whole thing and neither are you you know even though you know you you still you know you've still got your job and you you're carrying on with the whole thing you're still very much invested in the space beyond just you know like a pastime you know it's it's grown beyond that and the irony of it is that it's happened at probably the single worst time that it could possibly happen in terms of, you know, market narrative and understanding. And I yep. think that for me is the most significant green shoot in this whole thing. And we're not unique in that. There's a lot of guys and girls out there that are doing exactly what we're doing. You know, Blockmates is just becoming more and more of a, a player in the space that, you know, however we define it, however we want to define it, you know, like, you know, whether we're a bunch of DJs crazy or whether we're, you know, we're an honest voice that has a contribution to make or all of the above, you know, like yeah. we get to call the shots now because all the noise has been removed, as you so eloquently put it. <laughs> yeah. It's been flushed. And, the system and, has been flushed and we are now here. And yes, the other green shoot is that we do have an opportunity to, to start participating in what could potentially be the bottom and that we could land up getting this generational wealth through that process. Yeah. And like building right now, I mean, everybody says the bear markets are for building. And the reason for that is, but like, cause like during the bull run, 
you are financially disincentivized from thinking long-term. Correct. You got to get a product out the door. You got to tokenize it immediately and catch the, the going while the going's good. And like during the bear market, you have the ability to, to get through all that noise without having to think about price. You can think, I mean, the price is wrecked. That's the price. Yes. <laughs> and so you don't have to think about that. You, you have to think Correct. about how you build something that lasts long term. And like, it's so much easier. Like, it's so much easier to do that at the bottom and to start yes. at the ground mm -hmm. level and build. Because if you're building when everything is frothy, like, if you release a token at the top, like, you're just fucked in general. Unless you, yeah, yeah. Unless you sell a bunch of it in, and create a, a massive treasury which wouldn't look great until, until the bear market when you actually like survived it. Um, you know, there were a few protocols that did stuff like that, like, you know, sold out to a huge, you know, valuations and then just met, banked a massive treasury. People like Star, Stargate and some of these others, like they, they did a good job or Layer Zero, I think, did a fantastic job of that. Like just they sold a whole bunch of, of tokens right at the top and then, um, well, not tokens, but like it was private money raises, but like they gave, they bought themselves runway, you know, and like Correct. you can do that if you sell a whole bunch of stuff out at the top and then bank it. But the problem is that like, you know, a lot of projects, you know, it, it's, I think most people have difficulty discerning a quality project from a derivative garbage project. And so like, you get so many projects that were trash all along, but they were going up with everything else. So it's like, it must be good. And people buy into them. And then in the bear market, they realize just how trash they were. And when you're building in the bear market, like you have to have a like legitimately uh, quality product because the only people left are the people that actually really really care right now the people that actually understand the space and they're not going to part with their money for some get rich quick scam like they're they they barely have any left like they're <laughs> they're clinging to what they got and and they're not going to just give away give it away for for nothing like they want to see projects that are quality and if you have a quality project, you can still raise money in this environment, but it's, it's much harder. It's on hard mode right now. So like if, if you're a project that doesn't have eyes on it and, and has kind of a nebulous, uh, you know, fundamental value, you're going to have a real hard time in this market. And so what happens is that the projects that do come out of the rare market that are new, like those ones tend to to get a real groundswell like last last time it was linked like chain link chain link was was a product of the, of the bear market and like i mean the tokenomics of chain link are not great but like they were a project that has been wildly successful because it was everybody recognized that the it was a piece of tooling that was absolutely essential to what was being built here. And so like, if you can build something like that, that is actually needed, you can raise money in this environment, but you, the, the, the onus is on you to, to, to get the word out and to, to 
really sell why what you're building is important. So the tools that are needed right now, in light of the Binance shitstorm and all the FUD that's going on around. Yeah. For the record, for the record, I honestly find it very difficult to to see how Binance just ends in light of just how big they've been and but we never know. I don't think that I, there's an issue there. I but don't you think never I don't think that it is a coincidence that when this money is all washed out, you started seeing all these sort of coordinated funds happening on certain players. Cause like, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's a coincidence that everybody's funding Binance and yeah. JP Morgan and <laughs> Fidelity are creating their own exchange. Like they want but to make sure that, that yes. the, entrenched players are laid waste to so that Correct. when they when they move in and they launch their product they can be the big boys in the space yeah. and right now yeah. cz is a big boy and they yeah. need they need to do everything they can to to try to absolutely you know decimate his reputation and and make his sure product. that they can yeah. capture that space because it, they I don't know wanna, it's a super profitable one. I, I don't want to get into that because I think you're 100% correct and we could, do a, we could do another show on that. But the thing is, I want to get back to the tools. And the tools for me right now is that the narrative, and I've been saying this for weeks now, I am a DeFi maxi. That's who I am. And I know that this is where it all matters for us. You know, We talked about Bitcoin and its relevance. For me, it's bigger than that. It's not just about Bitcoin even though Bitcoin has its role to play. Maybe it's already played its role. I don't know. But we've had this discussion before. I'm probably more of a Bitcoin maxi than most of the maxis out there. Point is, however, the tools of the trade are critical at this juncture. The tools of the trade right now are decentralized exchanges that behave and that work and are as fluid with the liquidity that is on central exchanges. That is the future. You know, you've got the GMXs of this world. You've got Vela Exchange is coming up. You've got Vertex Exchange that's coming up. You've got Handle Fire, which has been doing the Forex stuff. These are good products. And these are products that are really going to set the foundation for the next phase and for the next cycle and for the tools that are going to be needed. Liquidity provision is probably going to be the single most important thing beyond decentralized exchanges. How are we going to provision that liquidity across 13, 14, 15? Who knows how many chains we're going to have? We know that it, there isn't one chain to rule them all. It's going to be a whole lot of them that are going to contribute to the narrative that is chains. How do we yep. do that? We've got Tapioca DAO. Tapioca DAO has got probably one of the most brilliant ideas that we've seen come to the market around liquidity provision using layer zero messaging and the layer zero principle and protocol. Dude, this is the kind of stuff that we need to be looking at more closely. And I want to do a show about this stuff because I know that, you know, obviously you've been working with Tapioca Dial. I have. I have. Full disclosure. Full I disclosure. I got back. Full disclosure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you've been working with them around the tokenomics, which is so important, which is, you know, like yeah. imagine if Chainlink, Chainlink had sat down at the beginning of that inception and thought about the tokenomics as closely as projects that are doing it now in this bear cycle. I think the tokenomics that are going to be put out on paper and in these white papers in the next 6 to 12, 18, 24 months are going to be the tokenomics that could very possibly rule the roost for crypto 
and the principles of crypto for probably the next 20, 30 years. Who knows? Maybe yeah. I'm being I naive. Mean, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but that's the way I see it. Every, every single bear market, we get smarter about like what gets put out there. And like, there's always new challenges, right? Like when you're pushing at the forefront of, of where DeFi is, like you can't just jump straight to these are the financial rails of the entire world now. Like it's going to take it increasing sophistication at every single step. And like, I think that what's important right now is just pushing those boundaries further down the road with new ideas that maybe will work, maybe won't like, but time will tell whether those ideas were good ones. And like every, you know, yard further down the field that you can move the ball gets us closer to that end goal of being the financial rails of the, the real world. Because like everybody knows, and the reason these big players haven't left this space is because they recognize the inherent value that having automated contracts provides. Like <clears throat> if you don't have assets tied up in bankruptcy court for months to years at a time when some when some counterparty goes under and all that stuff just gets executed on chain like that is so many lawyers you didn't have to pay that is all overhead that goes away the finality is instant it's just like boom i've got my money back this this trade is settled and like you can you can automate all this stuff and like pretty soon we're going to be trading against actual AI bots and it's just like uh, who, who even knows who's going to be real anymore like I I could just be uh, a figment of your imagination right now I, I'm actually Very just much stop it. <laughs> but um, no I assure you I am flesh and blood but you know, like in the future, you may have influencers that aren't even real people. Yeah. Uh, and how fucking scary is that? <laughs> like when you can't. Trust that's the next. People. But that's one of the next narratives, isn't it? I mean, AI and how, how the role that it's going to play. And I mean, we've got so much to look forward to, dude. I mean, it's just this menagerie yeah. of, of complex and wonderful things. And we get to freaking sit at the center of it all and, and kind of play this game of yeah of it's of a terrifying game this information. <laughs> it's a terrifying game but i like to play it so yeah no, I, dude, I, I don't see it as terrifying at all i, I think it, it's 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 stuff that is important it's relevant and we get yeah. to participate and for me that's i wouldn't want to be doing anything else i mean i've said it so many times before and and I will continue to say that. And when it stops being that, then I'll I will be the first to stand up and say, "Listen, I'm done." You know, but I just don't yeah. see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> and on that oh, note, agreed. Very and good. And on that note, thank you, sir. Yeah. So I think we need to do this soon again. I think there's quite a lot of yeah. loose ends of this one. Definitely. Um, maybe we'll do another one next week. I'd like to actually. Um, yeah. We've got Christmas coming up, so happy holidays to everyone. Um, we'll obviously talk before that, but to everyone out there, yeah, um, I'll yeah. just be wishing everyone. We'll be here. We'll be here, and please like and subscribe. Uh, share the link with people you know. Let them come and listen to us idiots talk about 
follow us That's on Twitter while it exists. <laughs> while it exists. Um, there's a couple of guys who are looking at on-chain stuff. I know that Dan Hayes from one of the founders of Radix. He's a good friend of ours. Who's He's actually managed to replicate Twitter in its current form and has got the feed on Twitter essentially replicated on one of his decentralized servers, by the way. Interesting. So, yeah. So if you don't follow Dan Fusilier, go follow him. He's a very interesting fellow and he's an absolute gem of a human being. Uh, complete lunatic, but yeah, he's 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 brilliant. Um, nice. Cool. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and we'll see you guys soon. Take it easy. Stay safe. All that good stuff.